Welcome to the NCO Journal Podcast, where we explore NCO professional development. This is a podcast series where we discuss published articles with authors and provide a forum for the open exchange of ideas, information, and solutions. I'm your host, Staff Sergeant Brandon Cox, Senior Editor for the NCO Journal. Today we discuss the article, The Mission Command at 73 Easting, by Master Sergeant Dustin Denny. With us is Chago Zapata, Managing Editor for the NCO Journal. Sergeant First Class Osvaldo Akite, the NCIC of the NCO Journal, and special guest Roy Parker, a historian with the Army University Press Films team. Thank you all for being here. Master Sergeant Denny, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? I'm Master Sergeant Dustin Denny. I joined the Army in 2004 uh, as a 19-Delta Cav Scout, first duty station. I was Fort Carson, Colorado, with... 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment, Lightning Troop, deployed to Iraq in 2005 under then-Colonel McMasters, who we'll get into more later, plays a significant part uh, in the battle at the 73rd Easting. Um, when I got back, was stationed in 2nd ID at Fort Lewis. From there, I was DA selected into recruiting. I converted to recruiting in 2012, where I recruited in New Mexico, California, Florida, Pennsylvania, and Texas. Um, And now I'm currently the Operations Sergeant Major in San Antonio Battalion for United States Army Recruiting Command. I've been married to my wife for 18 years. We have four kids, three boys and a girl. Um, And that's, that's my story in the quickest eggshell I could give you. Roy, could you give us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so my name is Roy Parker. I live in Bonner Springs, Kansas, and I work for the Army University Press Films team. I'm a historian. Uh, When I was in uniform, I too was a 19 Delta. Maybe I could impose on you, Roy, to tell us a little bit about the Battle of 73 Easting, uh, from, from the historical perspective. It was a meeting engagement. Uh, They did not expect, they were expecting enemy contact, but the size and disposition of the enemy um, was kind of shocking. They were conducting a large, they had been at at the end of a very large movement, almost 110 kilometers um, from where they had breached. uh, The the, the Iraqis had deployed uh, a corps, their 7th Corps, which was mostly an infantry corps with minimal armor, and they had dug them in, and the 1st Infantry Division had conducted a breach uh, two days before. And they, they opened a breach, passed the British 7th Armored Division through, and the 7th Corps. And 7th Corps was in the process of turning due east to attack into Kuwait, right? And there's, uh, there's other fights that I think Sergeant Denny mentioned, like the Objective Norfolk and a lot of other Objective Dorset and a bunch of different objectives that they set inside of Kuwait. Uh, Second ACR was making a movement to contact when they came into, the, into contact with uh, the brigade from the Republican Guard. Mike, my, my, before we, we move, why is it 73 Easting? I mean, is that like the, 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 the name of the location or what's the significance of that? Because it's it's a featureless desert, and so the only real terrain feature out there was the 73 Easting line on the map, so the, hence the name of the battle. Oh, that's interesting. Did I get that right, Sergeant Denny? Uh, you definitely uh, 
understand this probably better than I do, but that's how I understand it. Um, and I think part of the other significance of the 73 Easting is the fact that the limit of advance initially was supposed to be the 70 Easting. So we're talking about, you know, a major, a major fight that they ended up in, you know, three kilometers past their LOA. Um, so, which goes into the risk acceptance of the army back then, especially with Captain McMaster's understanding, you know, risk acceptance was required in order to, to maintain the tempo that we needed to put the Iraqi Republican Guard on the defensive. That That's kind of what I want to... What I found interesting, and then hoping, I was hoping that you can talk a little bit more about that, uh, the importance of making those decisions at the point of execution and how that speeds up uh, the, the tempo of combat. This is where I think we really excel. You know, coming out of the Sergeant Major Academy, we had, I think, 47 other nations there with us, their NCO cores. But what what we allow our NCOs to do is just even our really close allies with the you know, the British and the Australians, what we allow our NCO Corps to do as far as decision-making at the point of execution really speeds up our tempo. We are able to operate at, at an incredible tempo compared to everybody else. And in operations, combat, non-combat, just operations in the world today have never been faster. I mean, we are moving almost at light speed now when you look back just a few decades it's and i don't believe it's just technology i i think it's also the fact that we've really gone in the direction of mission command where again we make those decisions at the point of execution successful leaders in the army and in the world are empowering subordinates to accept risk to make decisions they're allowing us to stay inside you know enemy or objective OODA loops it's and it's all about taking advantage of an opportunity or mitigating a risk as it occurs on the ground, not sending that communication chain up and then waiting for a communication chain to come back down. You know, NCO squad leaders, 20 year old E5s on the ground are making life and death decisions that are able to swing a fight to our favor because of how quickly we can we can maneuver on the battlefield with that um and as an organization as an army as an nco corps we've been able to do this because of how we've developed our core um within the military not just the army where through all three domains you know we're we're developing people through better more in-depth, more rigorous schooling. Our operational assignments are really challenging people. I, and it, I think we took that to a whole nother level with this Security Force Assistance Brigade. We're going to see some incredible Staff Sergeant development in there. Um, but then also self-development. You know, when I first came in, it was a huge deal. I mean, it was almost unknown that you could take college while you're in the Army. Now every one of my NCOs is taking college. Um, the NCO professional development system is now culminating in a bachelor's of leader and workforce development. It's our major academy, and they're actually trying to move that towards 
the bachelor's at the end of master leader course and a master's at the end of the Sergeant Major Academy, uh, similar to what CGSC is doing uh, on the officer side. And all of this education allows us to put more and more onto the NCO Corps through mission command because we have this mutual trust within the NCO Corps from the officer corps and vice versa to accept risk, to understand intent and make decisions that our, our peers on our allied side don't have, let alone our near peers and peers on the adversarial side. And I think this is still what separates us from you know, China and Russia. The thing that I latched on the most with what you just said is is empowering your your soldiers, your NCOs from from down from the junior soldier up up to the uh, the, the more senior NCOs. Uh, if you empower them, they're able to they have an understanding of what the mission is, and they know that the decisions they make are going to have uh, the, the leadership behind them. But when do you start forming and allowing soldiers to to uh, to make those kind of decisions? I would imagine training and whatever, but I mean, what's what do you have to say about that? I agree, and I think this goes into what Captain McMaster's was doing with his with his troop before they deployed with the training. Um, I read about this young specialist. I think his nickname was Skog because his last name was was pretty pretty hard to say. Uh, I got it written down here, Specialist Headscog, probably butchering that name, so I apologize. But he was a driver who identified the fact that they were maneuvering through a minefield. But because of the training he did as a private and a specialist, he understood the capabilities of his, his equipment versus the capabilities of the Bradley. And he put his tank in a position to maximize protection to the front so we maintain a 45 degree angle to the enemy and he maneuvered through the minefield understanding that his tank could absorb those mines where the bradley couldn't and the bradleys followed on and he did that on his own and allowed his tank commander to continue to engage with the enemy versus having to you know stop taking those commands and giving those commands to the gunner and start commanding the driver the tank commander is just able to stay in the fight and allow that driver. So we're doing this. I mean, we're doing this right off the bat anymore um, with young soldiers coming into the army, getting put in ever increasingly uh, challenging positions to develop leadership. Again, as I mentioned in the beginning, I'm a, I'm a big fan of what Colonel Moore did at the Battle of Idrang, he made a policy where they would notionally kill a leader during training and sometimes multiple echelons of leaders in training to ensure that that, that young junior soldier was getting an opportunity to make decisions in a hazardous, stressful environment so that in combat, when they were forced to make a decision, it wasn't the first time that they were in that situation. Um, and we're doing that more and more. Our technology now in the military is is quite remarkable. You know, here at Fort Sam Houston, getting to go down to the Medical Center of Excellence, 
the technology they have down there where they're putting these young private first classes, PV2s, PV1s who have months, if not weeks in the army into these virtual reality simulations um, that, you know, in a real life situation, I would almost believe that an 18 year old kid has no place being in, but they're doing it and allowing them to develop their their confidence in themselves to make these decisions. And they are coming out as just phenomenal healthcare specialists and going onto the line with more knowledge and experience than we've ever put a new trainee into the army, into force comm with in the past. So I, I think we've really pushed this you know, to the left in someone's career, as far as when we're starting to train them to develop that that competence level to make these decisions um, and to accept risk. You know, uh, we've been done with Iraq and Afghanistan now for a while. So the, the soldiers in the army now, there's there's soldiers in the army now who who uh, have not been in combat, who haven't uh, had a chance to experience that and have haven't been tested in in, in that kind of fire. Uh, so it's it's good that we have these kind of discussions that allow us to to really dissect what the, the importance of these things, these kind of situations, these kinds of um, historical battles bring to them or bring to the army today. Yeah, because, uh, you know, in, in your article, you mentioned these decisions are being made by commanders, by, you know, then Captain McMasters and, and how all these this training is happening. But I want to focus a little bit more on when these decisions are made there's an NCO role in all these things, right? And developing the competence within their soldiers is, is part of the NCO's responsibility. And so I'd, maybe if you can talk a little bit about that, um, on what is the NCO's role in managing those forces and, and resources or the training that is being uh, pushed down? Yeah, I mean, NCOs are the primary trainer. Officers are responsible to ensure that training is, is being conducted and that it's meeting the standard of the intent that the commander has, but NCOs are the ones doing the training. And NCOs have to be competent enough, have to have the, that competency level. They have to have the trust of echelons above them and below them. They need to be able to understand the commander's intent. You know, and as we look, all of these things are principles of mission command, right? And they, they fall right in to where the NCO has to align themselves in order to provide that effective training to provide uh, training that that meets the commander's intent of the direction they're taking that unit. The NCO Corps is educated like never before, which is allowing us to to increase our training capabilities to create that rigorous training that's not, you know, we've, we've heard about check the block training, you know, really getting away from that. And I think that's the role of the NCO. You know, I, I picture the first sergeant is that, and, you know, I, I don't think I'm a crusty old first sergeant, but that's still the image I have in my head, right, of a, of a grizzled first sergeant standing up there, ensuring that his lower NCOs are providing training that's, that's effective and rigorous. You, you know, we want soldiers to be tested harder in training than they're ever going to be tested in reality, and, and that might not be possible. But that's what we want to go for. When when we actually get challenged 
we want what we went through in training to have been harder than that challenge so that we know we can get through it. Um, and, and NCOs are doing that and NCOs now are operating in a space that was once, you know, exclusively owned by officers. Uh, you know, it used to be officers that led troops, period. Now NCOs are doing that and they're understanding how to operate within that and commander's intent to train to meet that intent in order to achieve mission success and allow their officer counterparts that the operating space to be able to look up and out so that we, again, can speed up that tempo and manage the larger fight, the larger mission, whatever that might be. And again, this is just how we stay faster and inside the OODA loop of our enemies. Yeah, I think that's, that's, those are the key. You just hit it right there where I was, um, looking at what what does this mean for NCOs? That's what I do when I'm reading these articles is what does it mean for NCOs? And I think you hit it on the nail there is that they need to become competent. They need to gain that mutual trust from their leaders and they need to focus on that training. And I think, um, uh, and you, you only do that by some of those things that you already mentioned, which was self-development, self-assessment, um, being competent in all the different domains. Um, so I really found that fascinating from your articles and, and, and what would you say are some of the takeaways that NCOs could take away from this, uh, from your article? Yeah, and I think it's not just for NCOs. I mean, I think a big part of this is is what officers should take away. But, uh, you know, I'll hit the NCO first. We need to continue to develop our core. We can't, now that we're, you know, again, we're, we're definitely moving back into that more peacetime uh, army, if you will, peacetime military. We don't have those two major conflicts looming out there. We can't forget the lessons learned. You know, we can't, but we also can't just solely focus on those lesson, lessons learned either. We should be watching this fight in Ukraine. You know, what what is our largest near-peer, peer arguably, uh, doing in Ukraine right now? What can we learn from their operating style, how they're taking it into the 2022-2023, and what do we need to do to stay ahead of that? Um, so we got to continue to develop our core, continue to keep our our tactics fresh, um, to keep our troops inspired, and you know the world is copying us um, to include those that aren't so friendly to us. So we have to keep innovating. And NCOs are going to be directly involved in that through through training innovations, but then, you know, planning and execution as well. And if we continue to develop our core, we'll continue to maintain that trust both within our core, with the officer counterparts, within the junior enlisted and within society. And going to the officer side, I, I think as we transition into this more peacetime scenario, there's going to be a hesitance to accept risk. Um, we we are a very competitive military when it comes to promotions and advancement and, you know, assignments. We have to be careful that we don't become risk adverse. Higher echelon commanders and NCOs should be rewarding those junior leaders who are taking risk, even if they fail. Um, we got to be able to accept risk and allow our subordinates to accept risk 
there are times where, you know, not being able to accept risk is one of the biggest threats we have. It can lead to, to mediocrity, stale tactics, um, allow our adversaries to catch up with us. And we have to be able to accept that risk. We have to reward that risk. If somebody fails, we shouldn't look at that as a negative. What were they trying to accomplish? Was it an acceptable risk to take to create innovation? Is there a way to take that failure to, you know, conduct an after action review to change it slightly to still get that that positive, innovative result that we were looking for? And the Raider, senior Raider, NCO, senior leaded enlisted advisors should be making that mental shift to ensure that we stay on that cutting edge of strategy, leadership, uh, execution. And, you know, in my opinion, risk acceptance is going to be the primary key to mission command as we move. We were really, really good at that in combat, almost out of a necessity. There was just no way to manage every soldier all the time. We can't lose that as we as we move farther and farther away from these major combat operations. One of the things that uh, that I thought that jumped out is that um, within mission command, the commander's intent sets the left and right limits for where you can operate. But within those left and right limits, the NCO has a lot of freedom to do stuff, to make decisions in the heat of the moment. And that comes from mutual trust and shared understanding of what exactly the mission is. So that when you're, and I'm sure that maybe Sergeant Denny will agree with this, that um, in a scout platoon, you have, in a, in a best case scenario in a scout platoon, out way on the, um, at the, way in the front, in an OP, you hopefully you have an E6 with another E6 in a vehicle behind him overwatching him, but a lot of times it's, uh, it's two E5s. You know, so you have two 22-year-old E5s, 23-year-old E5s, and they're making, they're making life and death decisions for the entire task force based on what they're seeing when they're at a place like the National Training Center or, the, or JRTC or some, in some training. And in order to do that, you have to have a mutual trust between all of the NCOs, between the commander, between the platoon leader, the, the company commander, the, you know, the battalion commander, the S3, the, the all up and down the chain, they have to understand that when Sergeant Joe Snuffy says that he, he calls a spot report of 15 T-72s and 26 BMP-2s moving from east to west in the vicinity grid at November Alpha, one, two, three, four, five, six, that he knows what he's talking about, right? And that he's going to be able to make decisions in the heat of that moment because a scout platoon is going to be so, and then this, I'm just using this as an example, but a scout platoon is going to be so decentralized and spread out because you're you're covering a front for perhaps for a task force or for a brigade or for a division or even a corps as McMaster's unit was here. The second ACR is a core element, right? So they're they're moving in front of the entire Seventh Corps, which is at the time in 1991 was the largest armored corps that the United States Army had ever put in the field. It was five armored divisions or four armored divisions and one mechanized division. That's pretty big. That's bigger than any, any core in World War II, just for perspective, right? And so 
the leaders at the at the mid level and at the junior level have to be able to make decisions quickly by operating within the parameters of the commander's intent because you don't have time to stop and think about things. It all comes down to empowerment. Oh yeah. That's that's what the article's about. Empowering your NCOs. When it comes to NCO journal and what NCOs can get out of this is you know, empowering your NCOs, your your junior or junior soldiers to uh, to get the job done and trusting that they'll get it done and you know having trust go both ways. I think with this, what we're talking about too is NCOs need to earn and then demand a seat at the table once it's earned. Um, NCOs are going to drive the execution. So if they're not at the table when decisions are being made to provide input, to understand the discussions that went into developing mission orders to truly understand that intent as we were talking about, then they're not going to have the ability to take that disciplined initiative, you know, to make decisions in the absence of orders because they're not going to understand that broader purpose. Uh, I believe it's the NCO guide that describes that intent as the guardrails. Um, And they're the guardrails of what NCOs can do. And everything in between is your operating space and you can do what you need to in there to achieve that end result that the commander wants. But in order to understand that and not narrow ourselves down too far, we have to be at the table with our officer counterparts when decisions are being made so that we can do those things. One of the ways that we can encourage our soldiers to do this is in their spare time, encourage them to read. What's the old proverb? There's nothing new under the sun, right? And um, McMaster's, um, I've read his book as well. And one of the books that he read prior to uh, the Gulf War was Ernie Harmon's Combat Commander, where um, Lieutenant General Ernie Harmon talked about his lessons learned from the Second World War, specifically like fighting in the desert. And he focused on, uh, on McMaster was focused on reading the stuff about, from Torch, from Kasserine Pass and from the, the, them taking Tunisia. And they took those lessons and they incorporated it into their training program, right? Like those are things that you can learn because, you know, there's war has been with humanity for 5,000, 6,000 years of recorded history, right? There's a lot of lessons that you can learn and it doesn't just have to be from, you know, the 20th century on from when the internal combustion engine became, you can go back to the 19th century, the 18th century, and even further back. I would always encourage my soldiers to read in their spare time. And if I didn't know the answer to the questions that they would bring me after reading, there were always other people that I could, that I could take them to. You know, like, I can't answer your question, but I know he can or I know she can. Um, and so that's what I would, I would strongly encourage soldiers and NCOs to continue to read. You know, not just not just army doctrine. Army doctrine is important to read. It's important to understand it at the lowest level possible. But history also. History is not going to give you an exact recipe because history never repeats itself, right? It, but it, like Mark Twain says, it often rhymes. And so you can find similarities. And, hey, this worked for them in this situation. Maybe we could try it this way. Thank you for our special guest for joining us, uh, Roy. That was, uh, it was a pleasure. Appreciate you being here. Uh, if you'd like to know more about Desert Storm, Army University Press Films team has a film on Desert Storm 
uh, Desert Storm the Vanguard. It looks at Division Cavalry in Operation Desert Storm through the lens of the 1st Squadron, 4th Cavalry, the Division Cavalry Squadron of the Big Red One. You can find that on the Army University Press webpage, or you can find it on YouTube by searching um, Army University Press. Thank you all for joining us on the podcast today, and a thank you to our audience. Remember to put your knowledge to the page, submit articles, and get published with the NCO Journal. Don't forget to check out our webpage and follow us on social media. We'll catch you next time on the NCO Journal Podcast.